Open, if you will, to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. This morning we are going to look at the last three verses of that first chapter. Two weeks ago we stopped there at verse 19. This morning we're going to recap verses 18 and then 19 and then look specifically at verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me read it to you. Of course, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor. His name is Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in a church in present-day Turkey, in a city called Ephesus. And Paul writes to him, I charge you, rather, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. An interesting passage, and you'll notice there, uh, Though it was not intentionally picked for today, Father's Day, it, um, it does speak to us men, doesn't it? it? It really does. It seems like in most Christian circles, women take more interest in spiritual matters than men. And that's not only unfortunate, it's downright wrong. In fact, men are responsible for spiritual headship in the home, as well as in the church, but it begins in a home. Certainly, what is not hap- if it's not happening in a home, it will not. It ought not to be happening in church. And here we have two men in particular who have shipwrecked their faith. Well, let's begin at the beginning. Let's take a look at this charge that Paul gives to Timothy. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and and the host said this. He said. It's just a plain fact that the United States is basically on trial. Our rule of law is on trial. Our political understanding of what a president can or cannot do is on trial. Our confidence in federal investigative authorities is on trial. How true that is. We are living in a search for truth. And that's what trials are for to determine what is true. But we're living in a time in which truth cannot be had. Or at least that's what we're told. We're told that truth cannot be known. In fact, in some circles it says that truth does not exist. And if it does exist, it can't be known. And here we are, a nation on trial. Is it any surprise? When there is no truth, anything goes. When there is no truth, you can do as you please. And yet we all know, not only because of the scriptures, but by the fact that we look both ways before we cross the road, that truth does exist. We know it exists. Daily, even hourly, our souls require truth. We crave truth. Our conscience craves truth. Living life from day to day demands truth. 
and, and the reality is this. Truth is vitally important. Without truth, your life will become despairing. Truth not only explains reality for us, but truth determines how we live and how we respond to reality. Truth is imperative. And here is a truth that we each need to grasp. That's my first point this morning. Satan is alive and well. Very much so. He is alive and he's doing rather well. With all the trouble that our world faces, still people will argue these two things. They'll say, one, man is basically good, and number two, Satan does not exist. I hear it all the time. Man is basically good, and Satan doesn't exist. Well, the Bible says otherwise, and by the way, I think your experience tells you otherwise as well, but that's too subjective. Let's go to the objective truth. The Bible. Look at what the Bible says. The first one, first passage I have for you this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Look at how it reads. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in those verses there, we see that man is not basically good and that Satan is very much alive. Go over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It reads this way. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jump further to your right, to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That should frighten us. And then 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 1 John 5.19 reads this way. Be alert, rather, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Why should we be alert? Because the whole world in its entirety lies in the power of the evil one. That is to say, the Satan is very much active, doing what he does. Satan's alive and well. Satan is very active. Now keep in mind that not everything that happens that is wrong in this world stems from the hands of Satan. Uh, Much of it originates in our very own hearts. Uh, We see that in James chapter 1, beginning of verse 14. It reads this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. (laughs) Satan can only tempt you with the desires that are already sinful in you. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. Verse 15 reads, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, sin starts right here. Satan is very, very much willing to use any sinful propensity 
that we may already possess. He'll take advantage of it. And boy, does he make good use of it. I'm sure you've had this experience where at one moment you are living and thinking and doing what is good. You're, You're soaked in what is moral and virtuous. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, you find yourself lapsing out of nowhere into sin. Moments before, you were thinking godly thoughts, and now suddenly, uh, the things you're desiring, your very own thoughts, have gone completely in the opposite direction of what is virtuous, of what God would have of you. You're chest deep in in the mire of sin. My friends, the Christian life does require quite a bit of attention. You need to be vigilant over yourself, I think this is one of the reasons why so many people abandon Christianity. It's not easy. You need to constantly guard your heart. And many people get tired of guarding the heart and they say, I just want to do whatever I want to do. I'm tired. I'm tired of walking the straight and narrow. And off they go into the much more desirous, wider road that leads to perdition. And so here, Paul gives to Timothy this charge. And by the way, he's speaking to Timothy, yes, but in speaking to Timothy, he's also speaking to us. He says, I charge you. In other words, I command you. This is the instruction I'm giving to you. And it is rather emphatic, you notice. There's a sense of urgency. And here's the charge. He says, wage the good warfare. In some of your translations, it'll read, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, there are many fights we Christians could get involved in. But not all battles, not all wars are worthy of your time or your strength or your attention. And so, Christian, you need to choose your battle. Where are you going to fight What battles, what war are you going to wage? And to echo the words of the Apostle Paul here, my encouragement to you is that you would wage the war that matters eternally. The war that is going to have an impact in eternity. And that is the war between God and Lucifer for the souls of men and women and children. Involve yourself in that battle. Most of you will remember Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was the American Revolution hero. Do you remember his war cry? Give me liberty or give me death. Wow. I could see how that inspired so many people. What a patriotic, heroic cry. It echoes with the freedoms that we as Americans thrive on. Give me liberty or give me death. But there are better battles to fight. Battles that are greater than even patriotism. And that's a high battle. John Knox was a Scottish preacher And he involved himself in the greater battle, the good warfare. Here is his battle cry. Give me Scotland 
or I die. He cried out for the souls of the people of Scotland. Lord, give me them or take me away. The Apostle Paul had a war cry. He said, woe if I do not preach the gospel. If I don't do this, woe to me. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he has a different war cry. He says there, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a battle cry that is. Can you echo those words? Oh, you could repeat it. Can you mean it? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. John, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18, he gives us his battle cry. He, he says, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You'll recall what we talked about last week out of Psalm 61, that very last verse, verse 8. There we looked at the routine of the Christian life. And this is how it reads. It says, Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfill my vows day after day. What is the routine of the Christian life? That you would be so vigilant that you would worship or praise God daily. And that you would keep your vows ongoingly. In other words, what you've committed to, to God, you would keep your word. God is faithful, I will be faithful. That's the routine of the Christian life. And it does require vigilance, a great amount of attention. So let me encourage you to join the ranks of God's army and fight the fight that counts. The good fight. The good fight. I don't think we have time to fight more than one. We don't have the resources to fight more than one battle. So involve yourself in the battle that really matters. The good fight. The good fight. This was the problem that some early church members faced. They were less than enthused with waging the good fight. There were other fights they wanted to fight, but not this one. And this is the same problem 2,000 years later the church faces today. There are so many good fights to fight. So many worthy causes. So many things I can contribute to. But what about the good fight? The war that matters in eternity. Take a look at the result of some people who decided that they would stop waging the good war. That they would no longer fight the good fight. If you look at verse 19, there Paul says, some have, some have. There's more than two people involved in this abandonment that you uh, will read of. Here in the church of Ephesus, it was becoming much too common, so much so that Paul makes it clear uh, to address it with them and, and thus with us. Uh, these people had stopped fighting the good fight. Uh, did they do that intentionally? I don't know. Was it something that sort of surprised them? The next thing you know, they had stopped fighting the good fight. I, I don't know, but I do know the results. They stopped fighting the good fight. They stopped waging the war for souls of men. 
They stopped waging a war for the truth of God. And it didn't start by them not speaking the gospel outside these walls. No, it started when they abandoned the truth within themselves. You see, that's where the fight begins. Not with people out there, but with me, myself, with my own heart. That's where the fight begins. Fight the good fight. Wage the good war with your heart. Begin with your own soul. One thing for sure, these people placed their attention elsewhere and they found themselves on a different side of the battle. Notice here how Paul describes them. He says, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now that's a pretty strong descriptive word, isn't it? Shipwreck. Uh, of course, a shipwreck is, a, is an accident in which a ship is destroyed or sunk, leaving people stranded. People suddenly become victims of the deep oceans and, or maybe a, a, a desolate island. You go from being a passenger moving from point A to point B to suddenly becoming a castaway and your life is in jeopardy. A shipwreck. A person who's shipwrecked is in a hopeless condition, waiting to be rescued. No place for them to plant their feet. Shipwreck. And what do they do wrong? Well, always go to the text. If you have a question, always go back to the text. And Paul here tells us what they did wrong, which led to their shipwreck. Go back to the very beginning of verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. What did they do wrong? Well, they failed to hold on to two things. Two things that need to be the priority of the Christian life. Two things. First one is faith. The second one is a good conscience. That's what they failed to hold on to. Faith and a good conscience. What's the result? They shipwrecked their lives. The Christian life, the Christian church, requires two essentials. One is the faith, which is the truth. And secondly, a good conscience. The Christian life, the church, Christian life is you, the church is us, requires pure doctrine and then a pure life. It requires that you properly understand and embrace the truth of God, and then it requires that you properly practice the truth of God. The faith and the good conscience. Having truth does not necessarily mean you're going to be pure, you're going to put it in practice, but it's the beginning, because if you do not have God's truth, there's no way you can live a pure life. So you need to begin with God's word, if then you're going to live that pure life. That is to say that truth ought to lead to purity. Reject the moral truth. If you reject God's moral truth, understand this, sit back, cross your arms, impurity is coming. It'll be just a matter of time before you start embracing things that are sinful. 
You'll start with thinking in ways that are erroneous, that are sinful, against God's standard. It's just a matter of time, and usually a short time. It's that simple. Many times what I've noticed is that people who teach what is not true, whether it's from a pulpit or from TV or an activist group, people who teach things that are not, not true, they do so because they don't want to live a life that does not please them. They, they want to do as they please. And they're tired of saying, God said. Oh, who cares what God said is what they say. I want to do what brings me pleasure, what brings me comfort, what brings me self-expression. I want to be me. You notice that God never says, just be you. <laughs> you know why, right? <laughs> if I was just me, I'll tell you one thing, I wouldn't be standing here. And I guarantee you would not want to be listening to me. I thank the Lord that he said, Paul, don't be you, be like Christ. And let me mold you into the image of Christ. First you need truth, and then you need to practice that truth. Let that become you. You see, Christ says, be the new you, the one that looks like Christ. That's who we need to be. Deny God's standards, my friends, and do as you please, and it's just a matter of time before you are chest deep in the mire of sin. Those who reject God's truth will also reject a pure life. Isn't that what happened to Eve? Eve said, well, you know, God said, but I'm going to do, and she did what she did, and here we are. The faith of these people who shipwrecked their faith is now a useless faith. It's ineffective. They're now flailing their arms for help in this wide ocean of life. They're afraid. They're drowning. They're slowly dying. They're being more and more alienated from God and the people of God. They've shipwrecked their faith. And what, are, what then are the two essentials? Well, you notice there again, truth, the faith, and a good conscience, the implementation of the truth in your life. The conscience is a method by which God has instilled in all human beings, a method by which we gauge our lives. You see, God's truth is like the road map. The conscience tells us whether or not we're on the map. It's like the GPS. The GPS tells us where to go, and then the conscience would be the voice that says, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. God's given us that. And your conscience will accuse you, or it will give you peace. That's the job of your conscience, if it's working. A blameless conscience will give you contentment. A blameless conscience will give you tranquility and satisfaction. But when you live according to what is not true, and you start living in ways that are not pure, your conscience is going to create remorse in you. It's going to create guilt in you. It's going to create shame and insecurity, even despair. 
That means your conscience is working. Now the question is, are you listening to it? An aching conscience is like a toothache for your soul. When your conscience is aching, it is saying, you need attention. You have to go to a place where your soul is going to be cared for. Run to Christ. The toothache comes about, and what do you do? You run to your dentist. You don't ignore it, do you? One of the worst things is a toothache on a Sunday morning. Because you know you need to wait now until Monday at least. My friends, don't wait. If your soul is aching, if your conscience feels guilty, don't ignore it. Run to the doctor. Run to Christ. Do not ignore that shooting pain of your soul. Notice here what the Apostle Paul says about these men. Look at what he does in verse 20. He gives to us two examples, two examples of men who have shipwrecked their faith. And look at what he does. This is rather alarming, at least at first sight. He delivers them to Satan. Two men in particular, Hymenius and Alexander, we don't necessarily know who these two men are, but they're obviously part of the church there in Ephesus, maybe even in a leadership at one point in that church. Hymenius is not mentioned again. Alexander, or at least a guy by the name the same name, is mentioned twice elsewhere. We're not sure it's the same person, but we do see Alexander in Acts chapter 19, verse 33, and it's Alexander who's sent out into a crowd that's riotously trying to overcome the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Alexander comes out and quiets everybody down. And then later on, we see Alexander again in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And there Paul describes Alexander as a coppersmith who has done me great harm. I tend to think it's the same man. I can't prove it, but it seems to be. Here we're told that Hymenius and Alexander have shipwrecked their faith. That is to say, they have placed the truth aside. And now they no longer have a blameless conscience. They're guilty. They know it. It seems here that they became false teachers in that new and growing church. And as a result of what they had done, they set aside truth and purity. They shipwrecked their faith. And it appears that they're taking others with them, making things even worse. And look at what Paul says at verse 20. He says, I have handed them over to Satan. Those are frightening words, aren't they? To be handed over to Satan? That is, up until this point, they were not yet fully in the grips of Satan, in the power of Satan, but they will be. And, and how is that happening? Well, what the Apostle Paul did is he eliminated them from the church so that they would be under the full exposure of Satan. In certain circles, they call this excommunication. I don't necessarily care for the word. We don't necessarily use it here. I do remember one man who was a married man, and he decided to have an affair. And he said to me in my office, he said, well, 
God has given me a dispensation for adultery. Even sounds biblical, doesn't it? A dispensation for adultery. And he was removed from the church because he refused to repent. That's what these people are doing here, and this is what Paul is doing. He's handing them over to Satan so that they would be outside of the fellowship and the safety of God's people, outside of the umbrella of God's protecting grace. Listen, this nation has been blessed so tremendously. You know why? In my opinion, because of the church of Jesus Christ. The nation has benefited from the umbrella of God's grace because of the church in America. Children of Christian parents benefit, even though they may not believe, they benefit from their parents' faith. There is a grace in that home that comes from God through the parents, the children benefit from it. And when they leave the home, that benefit leaves them. This church is blessed because of the believers here who know God's grace. And then those who come and don't want to believe or do not believe, you are blessed by the grace of God through the believers in this church. These men are being removed from that fellowship outside of that umbrella of God's protecting grace. Uh, In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, uh, uh, we're told that we ought to remove the unrepentant sinner from your midst. And Eric Uh, Rather, Ray Stedman uh, notes that this, of course, is after a a long course of spiritual deterioration because they refuse to repent. Move them on. But there is a reason for it. It's not vengeance. You'll notice here, what you notice in the New Testament is that the reason for, the purpose for removing them, handing them over to Satan, is in order to jolt them into repentance. Repentance. So that they will get a taste of life outside of God's good protection and be jolted into repentance. So it's not purely punitive. It's not punishment. Rather, it's for discipline. It is a corrective measure. In fact, here Paul says, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that word there in the original language, learn, is to uh, learn through physical punishment. Very specific word. These men have refused to wage the good war, and instead what they did is they opted to embrace a lie-filled, impure war, and they ended up blaspheming God. They blasphemed God. Did they deny the deity of Christ, as Paul said he once did in chapter 1, verse 13? We don't know how they blasphemed, but certainly they slandered God. And now, as a result, they're being removed from the church so that they will be jolted into repentance. Delivered to Satan. And now Satan is going to have his way with them so they will repent. Now, Satan is not looking for you to repent. He wants to devour you. But God uses even the devil for his purposes. So that you will see, so that the sinner will see what life outside of God's goodness is like. 
and say, I need my Savior. I repent. This is not the only instance in which we see someone being handed over to Satan. Uh, there are several passages throughout the scriptures. Uh, here are a few that were handed over into the grasp of the devil for positive reasons. Uh, consider, for example, Job in chapter 1 of the book Job. And there Satan is allowed, with limitations of course, he is allowed to have his way with Job. Why? So that God would be vindicated. But Job suffered. He was handed over to Satan. So that God would be vindicated. Was it worth it? You could ask Job in heaven. But I'll tell you right now, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say yes. It was very much worth it. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this. A messenger of Satan was sent to harass me. And if you read on, you see that the Apostle Paul was inflicted with what he describes as a thorn in his side. And we could say, oh, poor Paul. And he says, no, it's good. Because I know myself. And if I had not been inflicted with a thorn in my side, I would be a very proud person. And he says, and so I was inflicted by the hand of the devil in order to keep me humble. Worked out well. Of course, Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. There he is exposed to all of Lucifer's cunning ways. Handed over to Satan. Take Peter. Uh, it's what we read earlier in Luke chapter 22. I'll read it again to you, what Gabe read to you earlier. Uh, chapter 22 of Luke, beginning of verse 31, it says, Satan demanded to have you. That's Jesus Christ speaking to Peter. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Whoa, that's frightening. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, Peter, I'm handing him over to you. I'm rather handing you over to him. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, in, in that text, Peter had just sworn that he would never deny Jesus Christ. Peter had just said, I'll be fully and faithful to you. Peter had tried to stop Christ from going to the cross as anybody could die, but not you. You're our man, and I'll fight to the end for you. And Jesus Christ turns around and says this to him. I'm handing you over to Satan. Peter was allowed to experience the scope of Satan's deception so that he would be jolted into repentance. And having been jolted into repentance, he suffered, my friends, he suffered, but he came back determined to lead and to lead the church of Jesus Christ, to be faithful. What a lesson, but how difficult it was to learn. You know, there are some in the scriptures who were handed over to Satan for sinful reasons. Uh, you see here two examples, Hymenius and Alexander. But you also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, a young man who was with his either mother or stepmother, either way, it's pretty ugly. It's incestuous. And there, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may 
be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, physically he's going to suffer, but his soul will be jolted into repentance. And indeed, I believe it's who we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 6. This young man does repent. This young man is now standing before his church and saying, I repent. Will you forgive me and take me back? You see, it worked. And of course, there is the example of Judas Iscariot, also given into the hands of the devil. John chapter 13, verse 27, it reads this way. Then after he had taken the morsel, it's at the Last Supper, Satan entered into him, Judas Iscariot, and Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. You see, Judas had already made his plans. He had already embraced a lesser war, a selfish, lie-filled war. And now the devil comes into him and actually enables him to do exactly what his heart already desired. And he works it right into the plan of Jesus Christ, for Christ had to die and resurrect in order for your soul to be saved. Here, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 seeks to purify the church from the danger of these false beliefs resulting in a sinful life. He wants to bring sinners to repentance, and so he says, I'm handing them over to Satan. It's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, every time we serve the Lord's Supper. It says that God, he would rather discipline us in order to save us than to leave us in our sins and be condemned. That's delivered to Satan, but well, how then can I be delivered from Satan? Well, a problem that we face today is that we no longer blush. Would you agree? Who would have thought 20 years ago that we would be arguing whether or not it's okay to have men dressed like women reading to our children in public libraries? If anybody said to me 20 years ago that this is going to be an issue in 2023, I would have chuckled and said, come on, we're not that foolish. And here we are. And honestly, it's the least of it. Here we are. We do not blush. And it's not just them, it's we. We first. Our sins just don't bother us. They're just not sinful anymore. Jeremiah chapter 6, 15, in regards to God's people, this is what the prophet writes. No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. No embarrassment, no shame over sin. Romans 3, 18 reads, no fear of God before their eyes. I like Eric Raymond's mention of this. He's, he, he writes this, this is not a good place to be. The Bible and history demonstrates that this intoxication with self-autonomy only leads to disaster. Regrettably, each generation seems to have to learn or refuses to learn this lesson for themselves. As we see here, my friends, it is a dangerous thing when our sin does not affect us. When we say that's just who I am. Or when I say, well, God's going to forgive me. Or when I say God doesn't care or God doesn't matter. Sin doesn't shame us anymore. And listen, 
Your sins are not worse than mine. My sins are mine and yours are yours. And God's not asking us to compare. He is saying, do something about it. Especially, my friends, beware that because a particular or any kind of sin is common among us in this world, make sure it doesn't become acceptable to you. Only because the world embraces it does not mean that all of a sudden it's okay in God's eyes too because democracy wins out. Now, what God said is true back then is still true today. Uh, Maybe you've noticed that the very first psalm describes what we often refer to as the frog in a boiling kettle. First we walk with them in the same direction. Then we stand with them much more comfortably and we stand for what they stand for. And then eventually we sit very comfortably with them and their sin no longer bothers us because they're ours too. We have to learn to blush again. You need a pure conscience, not a seared conscience. And God's truth ought to lead you to that pure life. Faith and a good conscience. Belief in the truth and then living out that truth if you want to be delivered from the grips of Satan. So let me close by asking you this. What are we doing in order to fight the good fight? We are called by Christ to live in a very secular society, a society that has actually moved on from being secular into a society that has now become profane. We are soldiers in the battle for the Lord. What is your battle cry? Ask yourself this, how does God look according to my life? Do others see and hear the truth of Christ come from me? It's a great question. Do you have a good conscience because you believe and you practice God's truth? Remember, this was the problem. They failed to do just this and they shipwrecked their faith. Today is a good day to consider and make determinations. Tomorrow's coming. Tomorrow begins everything all over again. Today, hopefully, you'll have a restful, peaceful afternoon. Think on these things. Meditate on these truths. Know yourself. Christ does. And maybe then you could start making a change in your course, if need be, before you are shipwrecked. Make the changes. By the grace and the power of God in you, make the change.